Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we meet some students who traveled to Standing Rock and brought back lessons to help fight gentrification in their neighborhood. We speak with an author of a book that takes a searing look at racism and injustice in Cook County. We discuss urban agriculture and food policy in Chicago, and we meet one of America's greatest counterfeiters. All of this plus the Trump Diaries on Lumpen Week in Review for March 31st, 2017. This week, Radio Free Bridgeport spoke with Nicole Van Cleve, the author of Cook County. Van Cleve, an assistant professor at Temple University, spoke about the racism and injustice in America's largest criminal court to John Daly and Jamie Trecker on Radio Free Bridgeport. Radio Free airs every Tuesday in drive time from 4 to 6 p.m. So we are joined right now by Nicole Gonzalez Van Cleve. Her book is Crook County. She's an assistant professor at Temple University. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be home. Thank you very much. Yes, a, a fellow Chicagoan. Yes. It is it is good to have you here. And is, is it okay that a North Sider's on the South Side? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, hey, we're we're very very happy to have you here. Although my family is from a little village, so you know my the Mexican side, the good side is from. Little village, so it's kind of at home. I just became a Cubs fan, and that's how I became a Northsider. Sorry. Well, now you guys not, did live down the street from the ballpark. Yes, we did. <laughs> That'll yeah. convert you. You can't buy it, honestly. <laughs> I think the Cubs is where we draw the line. We welcome Northsiders. But <laughs> yes. you mentioned Little Village, and Little Village is uh, a very serious topic yeah. in your book, Crook County. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how you started your research, and this has been a long project you've been working on. You know, I mean, I, I'm a lifelong Chicagoan, and when I was at Northwestern, I ended up uh, having an amazing opportunity to be uh, a law clerk in the prosecutor's office at 26 in California. And, um, you know, it was there that, you know, it was, it was really like the, the, the internship of a lifetime, you know, so I had all this access and I wanted to be a prosecutor. You know, it was my dream. And Northwestern kind of gave me, you know, the access to it, but they also wanted me to do research. They, you know, they said, you know, it can't just be an internship. You have to do something academic, you know, in this in this space. And so I just started taking notes, or, you know, deep field notes on what was going on. And what I soon realized is that to practice law in Cook County was to, in some ways, break the law as well. And some of the things that I was being taught that was being indoctrinated was uh, just the normalization of violating due process. You know, the police openly planting drugs on people and, you know, uh, judges and prosecutors kind of snickering about it. And, um, you know, that became the basis for what was to become a decade-long study of the system, me trying to unearth, you know, how is it possible for judges, prosecutors, and in some cases even the, you know, the defense attorneys to normalize practicing law by violating it and, and and sending kids to prison even for you know small amounts of time but also you know very serious uh, lengthy sentences and not really caring whether they had the right kid rather than just putting away people and uh, you know little village is um, you know the epicenter because you know that's where that's where the jail is that's where the court system is it's a jail that's you know 72 football fields so for Chicagoans out there who have not driven by this jail it is something to see I mean it's the nation's largest unified court system and the largest site of concentrated punishment and uh, you know what we forget is that the people in the Cook County Jail are pretrial detainees half of them are mostly charged with nonviolent um, drug offenses and many of them are too poor to make their bail and so they find themselves you know in this endless um, cycle where they're stuck in that jail, and the only way out is to plead guilty and just admit to whatever they're telling you you did. 
I know bail has been an int- uh, incredibly big issue. The, the bonding process and the president uh, has the president of Cook County has, has recently, you know, talked about that process, talked about the nonviolent offenders and yeah. and that uh, that that cyclical process. Yeah, it's a debtor's prison. I mean, you know, when I talk to my college students, many of them understand. You know, even if someone said to you today, you know, pony up eight hundred dollars, many of them admit that they didn't have enough you know, money in their bank account. I know I didn't. I lived paycheck to paycheck in college. And the idea that $800 earns you your freedom, I mean, that could really be your grandmother's life savings. And so, you know, it's easy to get charged with a crime, especially in communities that are over-policed. Um, what we saw in The Guardian did some excellent reporting around Home and Square. And many of the people that were pulled over and went missing for days in Home and Square were often stopped for things as small as, you know, possessing, you know, having a joint or small amounts of marijuana. And that's enough to kind of get you in that system. If you're accused, it becomes an endless cycle to try to get out, you know, to try to fight that accusation. And what I say is, you know, what is your freedom worth? Is it worth sitting in that jail, losing your job, losing your scholarship, uh, losing your home in some cases? I saw a defendant who refused to plead guilty. You know, his car was stopped and, you know, he was, uh, you know, him and another man were both, you know, were in this car and they found a, they found a gun and he, he said it was not his. And, and you know, this, the, I just admit, you know, it, it seemed as though he was, you know, telling the truth, you know, and he was fighting this charge desperately. But in the process... The longer he stayed in the Cook County Jail, he ended up losing his home. He gets evicted. All his stuff is, you know, taken, you know, confiscated, thrown out. Um, the only thing that was left of his former self, of his former middle-class self, were these Calvin Klein eyeglasses. It was the only thing he had left that showed that he had some semblance of a livelihood. And, uh, you know, that's the, the, the major consequences of short-term incarceration. It's not, you know, actually so short-term. Have you seen th- that process actually leading people to heavier crimes? You know, um, you mean heavier crimes? Like, so if they're if they're not convicted, they they go out, or if they are convicted, then they go on to to graduate, if you will. To yeah, you know, I mean, there's a, some debate about that. So, is it possible that because you're in the Cook County Jail or prison, just more generally, does that lead to uh, more crime? And uh, the jury is still out, if you will. But what it does do is destabilize entire communities. So when you take a parent out of a home, you know, you put the burden on a grandparent or an extended family, you take a breadwinner out, you, they can't play ch- pay child support, they can't do some of the basic things to help contribute to society, pay taxes. Um, so in that respect, that's the type of destabilization that ends up causing crime, if you will. It's hard to predict whether they're, you know, someone is learning to be more criminal in that space, but it definitely harms communities overall. And, uh, you know, you kind of talked about the normalizing of certain styles of policing, and it seems that it's also normalizing for families um, that type of incarceration. You know, it does become, uh, in some ways, if you are in a community that is over-policed, it absolutely makes sense uh, that going in and out of that Cook County Jail is just part of the life cycle. You know, and I think, um, you know, I I just think about those symbols. You know, every day there are kids that you know, take the school bus right past those, you know, the the jailhouse walls. You know, there's a carnival that goes up, you know, in the summer right next to those jailhouse walls. And you think about the people that can't bail themselves out, that are too poor to make that bail, and they're watching everyday life go by, and the children kind of watching the watchtowers look back at them. And it does feel like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, is it your destiny? You come from this area. This is not a a destiny or a place that most, uh, you know, Northsiders see or, you know, people of, you know, living in Lincoln Park. And so, you know, there is something that is um, creates these leveled expectations, right, that you start to normalize that piece of, uh, you know, that punitive structure into your life. And 
Um, you know, I think I have a, a picture from my of my family in the 1950s, and they're standing blocks away from that jail, and it looks like this idyllic picture. And yet, you know, uh, is that jail always omnipresent in your in your uh, in your life? And you know, my cousin at the end of the book, um, not to ruin it too much, but in, you know, in Crook County. Uh, I end up exploring the system. I'm undercover, you know, taking notes, et cetera. And in the in the cruelest twist of fate, my cousin ends up getting charged with a, a drug crime, goes through that same gang unit that I was also studying, right? So even with all my education, even with all the means that I had, all the social networks and cultural capital that I tried to build while being at Northwestern in this really wealthy space where I was a Pell Grant recipient, I was still one degree of separation, right, of, of the system. And so it really shows how big it's beyond the in, any individual uh, desire for someone to achieve, right? We think that that myth is out there. If we just work harder, do better, make better choices, but your choices are largely constrained by the social environment that you're in. You know, I, I was able to be at Northwestern and, and be protected, and my cousin was not. Nicole, I want to back up a little bit because you, you yeah. started out talking about that judges, police, and prosecutors are complicit in the system. How did this system actually come into place in the first place? Where did Where do we start this? You know, it's really, you know, it's interesting because I had this really what I thought was an awesome history of uh, the Cook County Jail, the building of the Cook County Jail. And, you know, it's interesting because they had several different sites for where they wanted that that the jail and the courthouse. So when the waves of immigration came, you know, after the Chicago fire, they realized it was almost a hazard to have the the old, you know, the old criminal justice center couldn't house everybody. So they needed to build a new courthouse and a jail facility. They looked in the center of the city and they were going to put it there. They said, well, the court should be accessible to people, should be regal, should be a place of dignity and justice. Um, And the city was reluctant. They said, well, no, we need a jail structure and it's too unsavory. We don't want the jail in the center. So what they did is they had another recommendation. They put it with the buffer of the lake. So they said, or excuse me, the river. So they said, well, why don't we build it on the other side of the river? I imagine it to be maybe where like the Leo Burnett building is or something where you could, you know, keep the jail away from the city and not have to deal with it, but yet it was accessible enough. And what ends up happening is they, they in some ways moved the jail and the courthouse six miles away from the center of the city. It was almost like they predestined this space to have no accountability and t- in some ways, you know, a a neglected space. It was near the insane asylum. It was near the juvenile detention center. It was as though the Chicago leaders were trying to take every social problem, cluster it into these institutions and just throw it away so that the average Chicagoan didn't have to see it. And so when you structurally remove, when you move, remove this jail and this court from out of sight, out of mind, the, the average voter in Chicago, the average citizen in Chicago, it becomes a place where there is no accountability for judges and prosecutors. They largely can practice law and pretty much do all the antics in the book that I explain and largely do it with impunity. So everything from, you know, I have judges passing out Girl Scout cookies on the bench to a defendant, right, and how inappropriate that looks. Random people just getting abused. Uh, a, a defendant asked for a, a jury trial and they wrapped an extension cord around his chair and they plugged him into the wall as though he was going to be electrocuted. Um, a, a child, uh, in one case, she was uh, 15 years old, and before the ban on cell phones, she was kind of fiddling and playing solitaire or a, a game on, you know, this is before really, you know, iPhones exploded with a ton of apps. This was, you know, early on. They took that child and they put her in the lockup where the actual defendants would be. And her mother was just left sobbing in the courthouse. And I had three researchers watching that same incident at the same time. And what it seemed to everybody was that it was just a cruel joke, right? Can you imagine that happening? Um, 
in the federal courthouse building. I don't, I don't, I can't imagine that, right? And so, um, you know, that to me, I, you know, it's hard to, to pinpoint where did it start, but certainly isolating that court from the average Chicagoan so they can't see it makes it see, makes it so that anything goes. And 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 largely, there has been no reform effort that's that's changed it. Even when they did. Um, even when uh, the Greylord scandal happened in the 80s, where people were actually taking bribes and people were getting indicted, you know that was outside accountability. But it lasted very, you know, very quick. And and shortly after, they just went back to business as usual. They may not have taken bribes, but they were still doing the abusive practices that they did in the past. You know, we talked a little bit about the minor drug offenses and and the revolving door because of the debtor's jail. President Preckwinkle does talk about this a lot. What what solutions do you think uh, work for for reducing the jail size and getting people? Yeah. You know, I think well, one issue that I've I you know I'm about I'm waiting a little bit. I'm stepping back. Um, you know, the Chicago Reader uh, was doing some great coverage of the judges that work in bond court, and what you know, most people don't know is there's these kind of risk assessment scores that are used nationwide to assess, to assess, is a person really dangerous? If the person's dangerous, then certainly they should be held in jail, right? If they're charged with rape, murder, some kind of violent offense, or if we think they're going to flee and not return to court. But the average person in the Cook County Jail that's charged with, you know, possession or possession with intent to sell, are they able to come and go and work? That's you know one one thing, and they get scores based on if they're dangerous, if they're a flight risk, and whether they can be productive while waiting trial. And what they found is that the judges are largely ignoring these scores that are just commonplace around the nation. Right now, I often talk about and write about in my research that these scores can be extremely biased. Right, they give credit for certain things that you know where you live, how wealthy you are, the types of jobs you are, things that they can ultimately stack them against poor people of color. But in the absence of information. It is so reckless that these bond court judges are just choosing to ignore something. So, you know, the question is, what are they relying on? Well, in in the book, I talk about, you know, these judges have particular uh, biases and stereotypes about what every person of color or poor person of color is. And I know that because I sent in wealthy people of color, so people that were educated, that went to University of Chicago, Northwestern, and I told them to dress down to collect data. But I also wanted to test how they were treated in court and inevitably those researchers of color were mistaken for defendants. The impl- implication was that if you were, are in that courtroom and you don't look wealthy or in a suit, that you must be a defendant, right? And this was kind of a trope. This and many other types of kind of racist tropes were deployed against these uh, defendants, their families, and, and, and in some cases, victims. And so my, you know, my concern is if they're ignoring these scores, which just seems as a very simple solution to decide who is truly dangerous and who is not, then they're relying on the biases that I note in this book. And many of them border on all but saying the N-word. I mean, that's how bad it is, talking about offenders as lazy and even when they have jobs, disregarding what those jobs are. Um, so I think the biggest thing is to get those judges to listen to some of the, the, you know, the basic practices that are considered mainstream across jurisdictions all across the nation. I mean, we actually could sit there, and if we wanted to do the math, we can actually see what they're ta- costing the city. I mean, I, I cost it in terms of human life. But, you know, if voters really want to understand how much it costs to house someone or put someone in jail for, you know, especially if they're a low-grade offender, it's not worth it. You know, it's absolutely not worth it. It's not worth it for them, and it's not worth it for the city of Chicago. It's not making us safer. And so I think that's the first thing is to kind of go after these judges. Um, I think Tom Dart is 
talking about ankle monitors and you know those types of things. But again, the pressure needs to be put on the judges because they're elected. And right now, most people, well, Chicagoans don't even know what these judges stand for. Some of them are rated unqualified and they, they keep getting elected. And so that they, they hide behind that cloak. They hide behind the supposed ignorance of the Chicago voter. And so um, I think my next step is to try to try to make some noise around these judges that are sitting on the bench and probably shouldn't be. This week, Buildings on Air spoke with Lynn Muller, Felipe Tendig-Matazans, and Billy Brudet about food policy and urban agriculture in the city of Chicago. Food distribution and consumption is a major factor in the built city. Buildings on Air airs the first Saturday of every month from 2 to 4 p.m. We're here with Lynn and Felipe and Billy, and um, I'll let you guys introduce yourselves more fully, but you guys have just been um, speaking, talking, organizing in some cases, uh, this good food, good food festival. I want to start from a place, um, you, I, I have to say, like, I've, I'm a little skeptical, and I think for all of the wrong reasons of, of urban agriculture. And uh, the main reason for my skepticism, right, is as I teach at IIT, and, um, you know, I'm talking to architects all the time, and for, for as long as I can remember, Every year in architecture school, there's like five urban agriculture projects. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, Lynn, you mentioned that this is becoming something that's like sort of in the ether, right? And and you definitely, you see it. Everyone's talking about eat local, eat local. I, I used to teach urban <laughs> agriculture at IIT. Yeah, see, it's a, there you go. <laughs> 2008. <laughs> yeah, so like you have all these architects and, um, you know, it's like, they've discovered it for the first time and they're like, oh my God, there's all these empty lots. And what if we just put food? (laughs) What if we just grew food on the empty lots? It would take care of all the problems. And it's like, well, yes, but like, you know, there's reasons why that that, that doesn't happen, right? And they're they're usually really bad reasons, but there's still things that we have to overcome, right? Like all of these uh, issues are are deeply complex. And so um, I'm really excited to have you guys in the studio because the question isn't like, one of coming up with the idea for urban agriculture, right? The question is, how do you address those complexities and, like, you know, make something that can um, affect system change? Um, and as much a, as good as architects are at analyzing systems, um, they they actually tend to be really bad at like figuring out how to how to change them, right? Like uh, architects are really good at uh, columbusing. I love this word, columbusing. <laughs> so, um, um, so yeah, I'm I'm excited to talk about some of those those complexities, um, so I can um, do away with this sort of like unfair skepticism that I've had in my head from seeing sort of like amateurish uh, attempts at what you guys do. Um, um, all the time, <laughs> and and especially to combine it with uh, issues of of labor and and the the more full um, economic picture of how these systems operate. Um, so I I, I guess um, just to kick us off, like if you had an adv- a piece of advice for someone who is just sort of entering into this world with fresh eyes, um, and thinks that they've sort of discovered. Uh, an amazing thing, and they have discovered an amazing thing, right? But but what what would you tell them, right? Like uh, you mentioned that you provide some resources, but but how do you set someone off in the right direction on on this kind of thing? Because it's really easy to kind of, I feel like go go on a false go on a false start. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say uh, connect with the AUA. I mean, we we really try to be. Uh, 
you know, not just a hub, but like a portal for yeah. people who are, who are, you know, newly interested in, uh, in urban agriculture, because it's a great way to just get a sense for the, you know, the lay of the land, you know, what, what's going on across the city, what organizations exist, what sorts of projects there are already happening. Um, Maybe you could give some examples. What I think is fascinating, what we were just talking about in the car is what urban agriculture is actually the reality of what it is because I think there you know you have perceptions of it from an architectural right. perspective which from are the, undoubtedly incorrect well <laughs> I? I don't think there's any right or wrong yeah. but I mean you're looking at it from an urbanist building structural point of view mm-hmm. there's a, a workforce development component there is the the kind of um, reclaiming the city yeah. component I think there are a lot of tech. There's a lot of technology entering this space, and so I'd be interested to hear. Um, in in fact, you know, at our our event this past week, uh, these past few days, um, we had some really big scale growers that are in the urban agriculture space, which may or may not match with your vision. And 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 at the at the same time, we had some of the the, the most grassroots kinds of people yeah. who are who are doing it at their in their backyard. So I'd be curious to hear, you know, what this what how you would describe the scope. Oh man! In in the city of Chicago, the scope uh, is is very broad. Um, it and it it just keeps on getting broader. So. Lynn mentioned, um, you know, some of these larger uh, scale operations. These are, there's um, Gotham Greens, uh, which uh, got established, it actually started off in New York City, um, but they uh, they opened up this massive um, uh, greenhouse, hydroponic greenhouse um, operation on the rooftop of uh, the Method Soap uh, Factory yeah. in, in uh, Pullman. Yeah. And uh, you know, huge, huge investment. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what their <laughs> their startup budget was, but it was it was intense. And I think it's seventy five thousand square feet, which makes that the the biggest um, uh, hydroponic or at least hi- rooftop hydroponic operation uh, in the world. Wow. Um, so there's that on one end. And they're franchised from other cities. From New York, yeah, mm-hmm. New York City. And so just to, like, put it into perspective for, for me, like, how, how how much food is that, <laughs> right? Um, you know, I'd, I'd have to go back and, and, and look at uh, the, the uh, you know, how many pounds they're putting out per year. Uh, yeah. But it is significant. And, and it's it mostly allows... leafy greens, which have a short t- growing cycle. I see. Right. It allows for year-round production, which yeah. is huge. Yeah. I mean, in a in a climate like ours, you know, that makes just a huge difference. Um, but you know, they've got uh, a really solid uh, distribution setup. I mean, they're selling at Whole Foods and places like that. But they're also starting now to reach out to, you know, other uh, franchises that typically haven't been, you know, these uh, beacons of of you know, super sustainable local food. Right. And so they're trying to, you know, to kind of reach different markets, mm-hmm. um, including, you know, the less high-end, you know, upper yeah. middle class, liberal um, sort of markets. So, you know, th- that's at one end. At the other end is kind of how the uh, urban agriculture movement in Chicago started, um, 
which at least in this most recent phase, because before Chicago was actually a, a, a major um, hotspot for the the uh, Victory Garden movement during right, World right. War II, which was really amazing, like really impressive. I yeah. Mean, so we're producing like 40% of the nation's produce at their peak. But I, yeah, I'd never thought about the Victory Gardens as urban agriculture yeah, before, right? Absolutely. But, uh, it makes total sense, though. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, you know, because I, I guess that's what I'm always trying to tease out is like, you know, um, in all things, right, is like, what's the what's the difference between like the, the fad sort of uh, and and the thing that's going to make a lasting difference? Mm-hmm. And and oftentimes those those things are the same thing. But um, like the question is, like, h- how do you how do you really pull out the the good stuff um and it always helps to historicize so that's a great great example jump on i love what you're saying because we're we're saying unpacking so like when i was talking about sustainability and what i wanted to pull out of that what you're just saying right now billy too is like we also need to think about what foods are produced so i i'm from the restaurant scene well and just to add to something you said lynn just so you all know uh, we just surpassed, I think, a year or two ago. We spent more of our food dollars in restaurants and food service than in grocery stores. That just happened like two years ago. Um, so we just surpassed that for the first time in our nation's history. So it's kind of interesting about where we choose to eat and how we choose to get our food. But the other part that I want to add about this specifically that I have an interest because I don't hear people talking about it either is what types of foods do we eat? Like, for example, like, Look at the region we live in. Why are we getting like oranges? Why do we expect to get oranges year round? Maybe it's just unacceptable. If we're going to be really about sustainability, right. we have to ask the questions like like that. Like maybe we just eat root vegetables because that's where we're at, you right. know, and you just have to be creative. That's where chefs and all these mm-hmm. really interesting folks that think of food differently and can make uh, you know make it beautiful and make it delicious and find different ways to cook it. I mean, that's a great service, I think, to a lot of folks. But I do want to lift that up because that's what's happening in a lot of these larger establishments. I, I just know, like, Mike, they have to make a certain specific type of food uh, or um, product. I keep saying product, food stuff. How are we going to call it? Like, <laughs> sure. a microgreen, for example. Like, do you eat microgreens every day? I don't. I don't think most people do. But it sells at a very high price at a local restaurant, and that's what they need to make enough money to have a sustainable business. Right. But is that sustainable you know my question is is outside of economic sustainability it's about environmental sustainability and really asking these questions about do we eat oranges all year the klonsky brothers spoke this week with two students from the logan square neighbors association ida hernandez and lily diaz who traveled to standing rock as students and brought back valuable lessons about activism hitting left airs every friday at 11 a.m you know while, while our movement uh, has to be built locally uh in this day and age, we're we're also want to travel uh, to support other people's other people's fights, and we got some great guests uh, in our studio uh, this morning, uh, who are uh, young people uh, from the Logan Square Neighborhood Association, who are activists, community activists, and uh, and organizers. Uh, uh, Lily Diaz Hi. and. Uh, Idis Hernandez. Hello. Good morning, Lily. Good morning. And Idis. How are Good morning you? to you, you both. Made, you made it, Lily. We were a little yeah, nervous. Did <laughs> you get lost? Yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Uh, 
It's part of the stress of live radio. Right? Well, coming to Bridgeport from Logan <laughs> Square is, is uh, almost as tough as going up to uh, Standing Rock. Now, <laughs> I met these two wonderful uh, young, young women uh, actually in Standing Rock, North Dakota. Uh, we spent some time together up there. Uh, uh, they traveled by, by van mm-hmm. with, a, with about, what, about a dozen yeah. fellow students and activists uh, coming up to support the struggle, uh, the fight against the pipeline, yep. in uh, and uh, so what? What I want to do this morning is, uh, first of all, uh, say a little something about yourselves and what got you up to Standing Rock. What motivated you to make that difficult trip? And uh, by the way, it, w- it was freezing out there last it September, was. Right? <laughs> and you and uh, you, you, I remember you getting there about uh, maybe about six, pulling in about six in the evening, and having about an hour of daylight left to pitch tents, and to you know to get your campsite ready yeah. before the winter evening chill set in. Uh, I, that was pretty heroic. Yeah, we made, we we did it. We did it right before. The sun went down. So, so, so what got you? What got you to go up there? Okay, so, uh, so yeah, we or start from the start from wherever you want to. Yeah, start. I'll yeah. start from the beginning, I guess. Um, so, we got a grant from the Kellogg Foundation to actually do some research, and um, we had about fifteen to seventeen young people um, engage in this project to kind of trace back their ancestry um, and and their migration to Chicago. Um, so. A great majority of our group is Mexican, um, so um, through the Ancestry Kit, we found out that 60 to 90 percent of our youth have, they're 60, they're 60 to 90 percent Native American, and so um, a lot of that is not prevalent in our lives because of colonization, because of migration, because of, um, you know, our, our history kind of being erased. Um, and so we wanted to kind of trace that back, and um, we saw the fight at Standing Rock, um, very, very similar, not to maybe not to the the extent, um, but um, a, a similar fight to gentrification and living in Logan Square and Hermosa and the Hermosa communities. Um, the same, the same way that people want to profit off of land, um, they're coming into our communities and um, trying to to make a profit, and in that they're displacing us and erasing our stories from there. I just what what, what did you find when you got when you got to North Dakota? Well, when we arrived, it was sundown. It was dark and it was cold, but everyone greeted us really welcoming. Like, everyone there felt like family. Like, we've been knowing each other for a very long time. We had an opening ceremony and we had prayers. And we basically had an honoring from the Sioux tribe there. And overall, it was very welcoming. Our purpose of going to Standing Rock was to connect it to our work in Logan Square that has to do with gentrification and displacement and at the national level standing rock is a prime example of land being taken for profit and people being displaced off of sacred land and people have been there for years and so it was really amazing to connect with people that are that are like us that are indigenous and we were searching for stories so we could be inspired and sort of create an identity for ourselves because like Lily mentioned, we don't really speak about our indigenous identity because it's not it's not very 
like talked about in our family. It's sort of erased, and that's what we're trying to do now through our community uh, work is decolonizing our organizing. Where did you Where did you go to high school? I went on the northwest side at Von Steuben. At Von Steuben? Yeah. Uh, and you didn't find uh, uh, that story of indigenous history at Von Steuben? No. So Native American studies is very minimum <laughs> in general, and it was never to a specific extent to really research our history. Like, sure, we know our parents migrated from Mexico and our identity would be summed up as being Mexican. But now we're taking on, we're taking pride that we are Native American and bringing into context that because Native Americans are not part of history, like we're in the present. And so researching our family history about indigenous identity is what we're working on right now. Yeah. And I think we were really hungry to find that indigenous experience. And I and that, that's the thing about Standing Rock, that it was very unapologetic and, you know, like about indigenous and like organizing. Um, so, yeah, going there just kind of for me, the way that I, I saw it was kind of going home in a sense. And I know that um, that it's it's different. It's it's very different um, for a lot of those people that, you know, they still have a lot of strong ties within their groups to their to roots. And for, for me, I, I didn't really have that. That was not something that you, my parents are proud of, really, to say that we are indigenous. My grandfather actually spoke Nahuatl, which is native tongue to in Mexico, um, and we're from Guerrero, but that was something to be ashamed of. He was not allowed to speak that in public. Uh, that brings up an interesting point. How did your parents... Uh, feel about you making this uh, journey, uh, Itis? Um, so we started a genealogy project in July, so July of 2016, and we did our DNA testing. And we spoke with our parents about our family, and we were sort of thinking of expectations for a DNA kit. And it was very common for our family to actually say that we were more un- European than mm-hmm. indigenous, because of colonization, it's it's preferred to be light-skinned, to have colored eyes, to have light hair. So our youth are very unapologetic, like Lily said. And we sort of, at times, got conflicted with our parents because we want to be proud of being indigenous and bringing back our history. So it was... It was interesting to hear that our family thought we were more European, that we were more white. Like, it's something that some people are proud of. And when our DNA results came back that we were 60 to 90% Native American, it was really a wake-up call for our family to to look up stories from their family, their ancestors that have not been told, and to sort of connect back to our history before colonization and just bring back our roots and our tradition. The Trump Diaries. Day 63, March 24th. House Republican leaders pulled legislation to repeal the Affordable Care Act from the House floor in a significant defeat for Trump in his first legislative showdown. House Speaker Paul Ryan conceded, quote, we're going to be living with Obamacare for the foreseeable future. The defeat exposes deep divisions in the Republican Party and opened up a new civil war with all sides rushing to blame the other in a circular firing squad. Ryan had rushed to the White House shortly after noon to tell Trump he did not have the votes. Trump, in a telephone interview moments after the bill was pilled, 
tried to blame Democrats, predicting they will seek a deal within a year after Obamacare explodes. The best thing that could happen is exactly what happened, Trump said. Watch. It's enough already. And California's Clean Air Agency voted for stricter emission standards for cars and trucks, setting up a possible legal battle with Trump. The vote signaled California's plan to stand up to Trump's agenda. Trump has vowed to ease emissions rules. California can write its own standards because of a long-standing waiver granted under the Clean Air Act giving the state the country's biggest auto market major sway over that industry. Twelve other states, including New York and Pennsylvania, as well as Washington, D.C., follow California standards. That is a coalition that covers more than 130 million residents and more than a third of the vehicle market in the USA. And Trump granted the pipeline giant TransCanada a permit for the Keystone Pipeline. The permit is just the first that TransCanada needs, and it is unclear if the company can actually get the pipeline built. Keystone has been deeply controversial with environmental activists, pointing to the effect on climate change, and Republicans pointing to jobs. And Trump demanded new security checks ahead of visas to tourists, business travelers, and relatives of American residents. Diplomatic cables sent last week from Secretary of State Rex Tillerson to all American embassies instructed officials to broadly increase scrutiny. This was the first evidence of the extreme vetting Trump promised during the presidential campaign. The new rules do not apply to citizens of 38 countries, that includes most of Europe and long-standing allies like Australia, Japan, and South Korea, but it does not cover citizens from any country in the Middle East or Africa. And Republicans dismantled landmark internet privacy protections for consumers. Reversal allows ISPs to sell customers' browsing histories, a data trove potentially worth billions. The measure passed in a 50-48 to 48 vote along party lines. The move means Verizon, Comcast, or AT&T can continue tracking and sharing your browsing and app activity without your permission. Day 64, March 25th. Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign manager who is under fire for his ties to Russia, will testify before the House Intelligence Committee. He has offered to appear before the Senate Intelligence Committee as well. And the CIA was said to develop tools to spy on Apple Mac computers by injecting software directly into the machine's kernel, according to the latest revelations from WikiLeaks. Apple said in a statement that the Mac vulnerabilities were all fixed in all Macintoshes launched after 2013. And huge anti-government protests roiled Russia, while a court put opposition leader Alexei Navalny in jail. Tens of thousands of Russians, many of them in their teens and 20s, poured into the streets in nearly 100 cities to protest endemic corruption. Russia has a blanket ban against unsanctioned rallies of any size. The police responded by beating protesters and arresting more than 1,000 people in Moscow alone. Day 65, March 26th. Devin Nunes, the Republican chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, met at the White House with a source who showed him secret American intelligence reports one day before he revealed that Trump or his closest associates may have been incidentally swept up in foreign surveillance by American spy agencies. Nunes' announcement, which was made without proof, was widely criticized. Nunes, an early Trump backer, has been urged to step down from the House inquiry, which appears to be hopelessly beached. Senator Mark R. Warner of Virginia, he is the Democratic vice chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, called it, quote, more than suspicious that Nunes went to the White House complex, pointing out that he would have to be escorted while there. Day 66, March 27th. Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, will be questioned by the Senate as part of their inquiry into ties between Trump and Russia. Kushner is to be asked about meetings he arranged with the Russian ambassador, Sergei Akislak. Those meetings, which took place during the transition, included a previously unreported sit-down with the head of Russia's state-owned development bank. 
and Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced a crackdown on so-called sanctuary cities and states. Chicago is one of those with a pledge to claw back or cut all Justice Department federal funds from localities sheltering illegal immigrants. Trump had earlier made the threat to yank federal funds from Chicago. Sessions said sanctuary city policies violate federal law. Sessions said, quote, the president has rightly said this district card for law must end. The Department of Justice will require jurisdictions seeking or applying for justice grants to certify compliance with federal law as a condition of receiving those awards. Sessions said he was, quote, urging the localities to rethink sanctuary city policies because those policies make our cities and states less safe. Day 67, March 28th. Trump signed an executive order today that nullifies Obama's climate change efforts to benefit the coal industry. The order effectively ends America's leadership in the international campaign to curb climate change. Trump also made clear that the United States had no intention of meeting the commitments to curb planet warming carbon dioxide pollution, turning denials of climate change into a national policy. Trump said to the miners with him at their signing ceremony, come on fellas, you know what this is, you know what this says? You're going back to work. And the entire White House staff will skip next month's White House Correspondents' Dinner as a gesture of solidarity. Trump has already said he will not attend. Trump's snub is the first time since the 1970s that a president has skipped the event. But the absence of the entire White House staff, including the press secretary Sean Spicer, may be unprecedented in the dinner's history. Spicer said the decision was fueled by the administration's displeasure with how Trump had been treated by the press. Mr. Spicer said, quote, The staff is standing in solidarity with the president, who has been treated unfairly. We hope that things improve and we can attend next year. And Scotland voted to demand a new referendum on Scottish independence. The referendum could take place before Britain completes its withdrawal from the European Union, known as Brexit. And Devin Nunes refused to recuse himself from the House investigation into Russian meddling as Democrats accused him of stalling the inquiry by canceling meetings. Pressed about concerns from Democrats, Nunes said, that sounds like their problem. And under heavy pressure from conservative activists, House Republican leaders in the White House have restarted negotiations on legislation to repeal the Affordable Care Act. That effort could take weeks, if not months, and the push did not meet with enthusiasm from Senate Republicans. Day 68, March 29th. Ivanka Trump, the elder daughter of Trump, is becoming an official government employee, joining her husband in serving as an unpaid advisor to her father in the White House. Trump already has an office in the West Wing, but her plan to be an unofficial advisor had run into ethical concerns. And Prime Minister Theresa May set formal notice of Britain's intention to withdraw from the European Union today. May said she was invoking Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, putting Britain on track to leave the European Union in 2019. Scotland has already said it will call for a new referendum on breaking away. Day 69, March 30th. Two White House officials gave Devin Nunes intelligence reports that showed that Trump and his associates were incidentally swept up in foreign surveillance by American spy agencies. That revelation, first reported in the New York Times, will increase the pressure on Nunes, who's been asked to recuse himself from the investigation into Trump's ties with Russia. And Michael Flynn is offered to testify in exchange for immunity from prosecution. The offer, long rumored but first confirmed by the Wall Street Journal, indicates that the disgraced former national security advisor believes he's in legal jeopardy. So far, the FBI and the Senate have not accepted the offer. Flynn is to be questioned over the Trump's campaign's contacts with Russia. In North Carolina, lawmakers repealed a controversial state law that had restricted transgender bathroom use in public buildings. The law, known as HB2, cost the state an estimated $3.5 billion in lost revenues and was widely mocked. Trump's approval rating has slumped to 35%, another historic low. These are the Trump diaries. Lumpin' Radio now presents the first in a new series of radio documentaries. This piece by reporter Ed Comenda introduces a Bridgeport resident, Arthur J. Williams, Jr., 
who is considered one of the greatest counterfeiters in American history. This is Lumpen Radio's The Forger. The Forger is a Lumpen Radio documentary by Ed Commenda, produced by Jamie Trecker. I met Arthur J. Williams Jr. a short time after walking into the ballpark pub, a brand new White Sox bar on West Pershing Road. On the wall is a painting of Old Comiskey Park on the evening of July 12, 1979, Disco Demolition Night. The painting depicts the outfield shortly after a controlled explosion destroyed a mountain of disco records and the field, sending a plume of smoke into the sky. In the smoke of the painting, there's a face. In certain light, it kind of looks like Richard J. Daly. So I asked the owner, is that the mayor? No, he said. That's Benjamin Franklin. I asked a couple more questions to find out why the face on the $100 bill ended up on the wall of a Bridgeport bar. Turns out the guy who painted the wall was at one time one of America's most wanted counterfeiters, the first man to replicate the 1996 $100 bill. Some say Arthur J. Williams Jr. printed as much as $10 million in bogus money before Secret Service agents caught up to him and put him in prison for six and a half years. In jail, Williams wrote a fantasy novel and picked up oil painting. Behind bars, he discovered a desire to do good through art. Art Williams got out of jail on July 23, 2013 and returned to Bridgeport to start a new life as an artist. Williams is now a free man, but that makes him feel a little strange. Most people don't give freedom a second thought. It's a built-in luxury. Before January 3rd, when a judge took Art off probation, he hadn't seen that luxury since he was a 12-year-old boy living in the Bridgeport Homes Projects. He sat down with Lumpen Radio to talk about his new life as a free man. I just got off probation. You know, I've been on it for three years now. It was a huge accomplishment, especially since I've been on probation since I was 12. You know, 12 years old, I've been on some sort of probation, 44, you know? So this is the first time in my life that I've actually am free from that. I didn't even know what to feel, really. When I walked, because I had to go to court. I had to go to court for it. And uh, when I walked out, like even now I still freak out. Because I used to have to go to therapy and, man, they had me on some intensive stuff, you know, for three years. And, you know, so for me, like even now, I'm like, man, I I don't have anybody over my shoulder, you know. I don't have to go check in, you know. Like I haven't even traveled yet, you know. And I know I don't have to call nobody, you know, to go travel. I mean, I could just get in my car and go. You know, I haven't been able to do that forever. Not, not that it ever stopped me, because I've traveled all over even, but you know, on probation, not caring back in the day. But I just it feels just feels liberating, man. You know, it feels like a huge thing lifted off my chest, you know. But yeah, the the, the like the first week I was kinda kinda even almost shaky feeling. Like even nervous. Like, man, am I really off, you know? Because I've been on it for so long. Yeah. You know, so yeah, it was just, it was uh even now, like I said, even now it's still kind of strange, you 
know, it still has its times where I'm tripping like, man, I ain't got a probation officer, you know. Art Williams grew up in the old Bridgeport Homes projects at 31st and Luthuanica, a place that stuck out like a sore open wound in the neighborhood. A low-rent fortress of nasty cinder block. It was a tough place for a white kid on probation to grow up. Art Williams was there when Southside gangs began their reign. The project was so bad, the city bulldozed it in defiance of a court order. According to Rolling Stone, one of Art's earliest memories was sitting in the back seat and watching his father, Arthur Sr., and another man rob a truck hauling television. His father eventually abandoned the family, leaving Art and his two sisters alone in a Bridgeport housing project with his bipolar mother. At 12, Art entered St. Rita High School after skipping two grades. Living in a poor family, though, Art had to transfer to Kelly High School in Brighton Park. He dropped out during his sophomore year. He said he robbed parking meters to buy groceries for his family. Around this time, his mother started dating a man known on the streets as Da Vinci, a neighborhood artist and counterfeiter. And that set Williams down his path. So yeah, everything, you know, is, is revolved around money with me. And, and like I said, I, I'm, I'm real thankful that I, I've reached a point to where I've, I've, I've now been able to change it into mine. Because before I was always copying it. And I don't mean, I mean, whether it's copying it, literally printing it, copying, or, or even just drawing it, it was always copying it, you know? Now I'm... I'm, I'm not copying it no more. Williams now lives in your average Bridgeport home with his girlfriend, 11-year-old daughter, handicapped sister, and his baby boy. The house doesn't look like the home of a famous counterfeiter, a man featured in Rolling Stone magazine and a book titled The Art of Making Money. Family photos are everywhere. Baby toys cover everything. This is the home of a happy family. It isn't until I'm led down a creaky flight of stairs to the basement that I see the world of Art Williams Jr. Leaning over tracing paper on his desk with a cigarette between his fingers, Williams could pass for a working-class Southsider. He wears two pairs of glasses so he could see what he's drawing. He's muscular, but he doesn't look like a bodybuilder. On the street, you might not give him a second glance. He looks like a guy who'd buy you a beer at Mitchell's Tap. For years, Art didn't talk about his secrets from an underworld that seduced him into a life of crime. Now, he freely talks about money and his journey out of the darkness. It was always copying it, you know? Sure. Now I'm, I'm, I'm not copying it no more. I'm taking it and I'm, I'm, I'm changing it, I'm twisting it, I'm doing... I'm doing my own thing to it. And this is, so this is the first time I've done that. After this money collection, or this freedom collection, this will be the last thing I do with money. That's it. It's really? Done. Yeah, I'm done. I'm gonna do paintings out of the dagger. In prison, Art wrote a fantasy novel called Kane's Dagger, a sprawling 700-page tale he wrote longhand. The story includes biblical characters like Lucifer, Jesus, and angels. I wrote a book called King's Dagger. Fantasy fiction, it's about the secret society. I was taught 
some really far out stuff when I was young. And uh, and I just took those stories and just started kind of meshing them all together. And uh, yeah. it's a spiritual book and it has, you know, angels and demons, God and Jesus and Lucifer, 700 pages, man. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's like, it can knock somebody out with that yeah. thing, man, you know? I was taught that there was actually a world of beings that were energy, man, like pure energy, you know? They've been around for a long time, you know? How they travel, how they move, that's, you know, beyond me, but that there is something out there, you know, um, that just like we can create stuff, you know, they can create stuff, but just at a higher version of it, you know? Like they can create worlds where we can create bridges and dams and stuff. When he got out of prison, Williams moved back to Bridgeport and picked up odd jobs to pay the bills. He scrubbed toilets, transported cars, and picked up painting jobs on construction sites. In February, he got laid off for a couple weeks and felt something career criminals often describe as the call of the streets. Even though I just got laid off for those two weeks and, I, and it was tough, you know, having a family. In the past, I was, I was quick to go, okay, I, I, I'm going to go back to what I know. I'm going to print money or I'm going to hustle. I'm going to do something to make some money. I know everybody in the city. I mean, if there's, in, there's probably not too many people that are more connected to me or connected than I am. I mean, I literally can walk out here and, you know, be amazed at what I could find, you know? And, um, but I chose not to. And, and for me, that's freedom from that now. I'm free from that, those chains, you know? So, you know, just, it, just a lot of freedom going on right now, man. At night, Williams retreats to his basement to listen to Christian rap music and paint. Many of his works are inspired by money. He's hand-drawn giant bills donning the faces of Al Capone and the Daly family. On May 12th, Williams will have his next art show at the Lacuna Lofts. Dubbed the 1875 Freedom Collection, the nine-piece exhibit draws from currency printed in honor of the Civil Liberties Act. Each money-inspired piece features a powerful female character that represents the strength of America. May 12th is gonna be a big day for me. This show, you know, it's kind of like you know, you think about being in prison and learning how to paint. And, and I never thought for a moment that painting would be something that would be so prevalent in my life, you know? For me, it's like, it's closing a chapter in my life, you know? Like the money has been, it's, it's been in my life since I was 15 years old. And, and, and I'm very thankful that I've been able to use it the way I'm using it now, you know? In the sense to where, not just is it beautiful, and, and no one really pays attention to the old money, the, the art that, is, that these engravers, you know, created. And so for me, you know, even though I'm fascinated with money, I, I'm fascinated with the art and the, and the skill that went into this. Why did you come back to, to Bridgeport? I mean, were you, were you always, like, after prison? Was it just make sense to come back here and start again here well I mean that that I haven't always been here like I, I I tend to go to Texas a lot too throughout my life when I was doing uh, my money I had a place in Texas and I had a place here and usually I would come here and I would do all my dirt and then I would go back to Texas where nobody knew where I was 
So I like to kind of be hit, you know? Um, and so I, you know, my original plan when I was in prison was to go, because I had a wife and kids down there. And so my original plan was to go back. She lives in Austin. And so I was going to go down there. But I wanted to be near, you know, my wife and I wanted to be near my children. Well, anyway, she divorced me like a year before I got out. I did six and a half. She divorced me a year before I got out. And, uh, and you know, I talked to some of my friends here in Chicago and they were like, hey, man, we could help you get a job. You know, we could help you get on your feet. And, uh, and, I, and, and I didn't tell on anyone, you know. That's the other thing is, you know, I was able to come back to my neighborhood because I didn't give up anybody. You know, most people, they give up people, so they don't want to go back to their home, you know. And I didn't. And uh, so when I came back, you know, this neighborhood actually took care of me. Like, this neighborhood is, is alive. It really is. Bridgeport has a, has a liveliness about it, man. You know, because the people in this neighborhood that I grew up with, even though I hadn't seen them for six and a half years, when I got out, they got me a car. They got me a job. They got me an apartment. You know, I had to work for these things, but they made it possible for me to do it without breaking the law, you know? There was even an old Italian, I went into the rest, you know, restaurant on State Street, and he came up to me, and I didn't even know he knew me, you know? This is an old, old time, like, gangster type dude, you know? Like, 80 years old, he's like one of the last ones. And he comes up to me, and I'm with my boss, who actually goes in this place all the time. At that time, I was driving cars, I was transporting vehicles. And he comes up to me and he kisses me on my cheek, and he says, you know, I'm really proud of you. You know, they, they, you, you, you kept your mouth shut, you did your time, you came home, you know? He says, if, and he goes, if you ever feel like you need to do something again that's gonna break the law and put you back in prison, you come over here and let me know what's going on and I'm gonna help you out. I don't want you ever breaking the law again. Now this was coming from a, an old gangster telling me, don't ever break the law. So this neighborhood actually embraced me in a sense where everybody wanted to see me win and nobody wanted to see me go back to prison. For me, it saved my life, you know? It saved my life because, you know, they, they were good to me and even my art, you know? People have bought pieces right at the right time, right when I need it, you know? So coming back here, you know, <clears throat> is, is, is the reason why I think that I'm free still. Art never had it easy. His freedom came at a cost. He spent half his life running through a shadow land where good men turned bad pursuing a common goal. Survived the strange and wild ride called life. Listen to the stories of Arthur J. Williams Jr. and you'll hear the voice of a survivor. Let him tell you about his dreams. You might get the feeling you're talking to a man reborn. A neighborhood guy who got lost in hell and found his way back home. The Forger is about the life of Art J. Williams, Jr. By Ed Comenda. Produced by Jamie Trecker. Music from Jeff Parker and Micaiah McRaven, courtesy of International Anthem Recording Company. Additional music by Ben Sound. Voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt. Special thanks to Scotty McNeese. This is a 2017 Lumpen Radio documentary.
The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN-LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com.